Hello everybody and welcome to Hospitality Maverick Podcast with me, Michael Tingser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are on a mission to inspire leaders and entrepreneurs in the hospitality industry to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. Today we are joined by Noam Kostuki. Noam works with entrepreneurs, artists, business owners and investors to raise funds, grow companies, create legacies and much more. He has a history of helping individuals to pursue their passion in a way that creates value for themselves and others. We are here today to talk specifically about his fine dining restaurant, HIR, here, a jungle culinary experience in Costa Rica. So tune in and enjoy this amazing conversation with Noam. There will be rumble in the jungle. Hello, Noam. It's a pleasure to have you here at Hospitality Mavericks. Uh, let's kick off with uh, hearing a bit about uh, what's your story, where are you at, and uh, where are you going with your fine dining experience in the jungle? Sure. So my story, to sort of make the, the long story short, is that I've been working as a business coach uh, and corporate trainer for the last 12 years, and I arrived <laughs> in Costa Rica, bought a piece of land. I've always loved cooking. Um, but I've got no culinary training. I've never worked in a kitchen, not even as a waiter. I always had the dream of someday hiring a chef and working with the chef to get them, you know, to help them design dishes and that I would, you know, be owning the restaurant. And um, I bought a piece of land in Costa Rica to start a coaching retreat center. I realized uh, that the internet here was just so bad that I could not do my coaching. And so I thought of flipping things upside down. Uh, and I said, you know what? You know, we'll, we'll start with the last bit, which is the restaurant. And I'll do a little bit of a fine dining place here, a temporary sort of fine dining uh, in the jungle of Costa Rica. Just the time that I figure out the internet situation and go back to the business coaching and, you know, what I, what I do, what my quote unquote real job is. The fine dining just took off so amazingly and I was just blown away by the response that people gave us and by the awards that I received without even having to apply for anything and so I just basically couldn't stop I had guest chefs you know Michelin star guest chef I had a guest chef from the UK and now we're you know I'm speaking at uh, Costa Rica's top cooking school we've had a dish that was select as one of 25 to travel around the world for by open table. And here I am, I'm finding myself actually running a restaurant now and cooking there. And it's an absolutely magical experience. So I started on 21st of January, 2017, so last year. And what it was, I had a little casita, a little wooden house that was about five meters by five. And that little wooden house, five by five, contained the kitchen, the bathroom, and my bedroom, and basically all my living space. So there was no space inside for the guests. So the guests were, there's two picnic tables, you know, like wooden picnic table outside on the grass, and that was it. When I started, that's how the restaurant was. So I had a tiny little kitchen, which had, you know, a six-thing, six-stove cooker. Um, I had a little table, I had a sink, and that was about it. So... In order to plate my dishes, I had to take all the stuff off the cooker, close the cooker because I had like a, a glass lid. I would have to close the cooker so I could put my plates and actually plate for the guests. Guests had to come inside the kitchen and through my little quote-unquote bedroom, which really was just a mattress between three fridges. 
and they and 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 they had to go through that to go to the bathroom, which was just behind the kitchen. So it was a very weird and intimate and unique experience. And I always remember the the very first guest at the end of their dinner, they said, "We want to come back next year. We're coming back to Costa Rica, and we want to make a reservation for next year." And at that time, I was thinking, "Holy shit, I don't even know if I'm going to be open in two months." But of course, you know, I couldn't refuse. When they came back a year later, and they came, you know, a year later, day to date, they told me a funny perspective on the story, which is that I had sent for them a shuttle to go and pick them up because we're about 30 minutes away from the closest city um, and town. It's really like a little village, you know, beach village. They said that after they crossed the second river, they were pretty sure that they were being kidnapped because they thought there's no fucking way the fine dining place is going to get there. And then they arrived. And every guest used to have the exact same experience because they would see just these two tables. And I was doing everything alone to start with. So it was me serving, cooking, cleaning. And I would welcome them. And the question would always be the same. Is this the fine dining here place? And we're like, yes, please come in. And you'd see people come, walk in. uh, Well, walk in. There was no in. Sorry, they would walk in the garden and sit at these two wooden tables, and they looked very confused every time. They were always, you could see they were nervous, and you could see things going through their head, being like, are we being scammed? Is this a joke? What the fuck is going on? And that would be, you know, their experience until I would bring the first plates, and then they would be like, holy shit, wow, take the mobiles out, take photos, and then I would serve seven plates per person. It's improved a little bit. Now we've got an actual kitchen that's a much bigger kitchen, but people still eat outside on the same wooden tables, and it's still a family-style dinner. So we have up to 12 guests, and whoever books books in the night sits all together, elbow to elbow. And we've had people sort of tell us at the beginning of dinner, wow, isn't this a little bit close uh, to be sitting next to people we don't know? And then at the end of the dinner, it's always the same. People are exchanging phone numbers. They're inviting each other to each other's houses. And they're like, wow, it's amazing to meet all these incredible people. Wow, that sounds like quite a, a unique experience. So, so how, how often are you doing this? Is that something you're running every night, Noam? Or this is like, is it once a month? How, how, how does it work if you want to book on to a, a fine dining experience in the jungle? So we, we, we work with reservations only. So there's no walk-in. It's a, it's a set dinner. It's three hours from 5 to 8 p.m., which sounds very early, but in Costa Rica, the sunset is at 6 p.m. So what happens is that gets people to come here when there's still a bit of light and stay until it becomes pitch black. And we do dinners. It really depends on the season because Costa Rica has got very changing seasons. So we've got a high season, December to April, where we do um, from two to five dinners a week. And then there is the low season, May to October. May, where we were basically closed. September last year was also closed. And then the months in between, we have, for the moment, uh, one to two dinners a week. We've got the open table booking. So people book through open table. And then I call them. I call every single guest. And sometimes we speak for up to an hour to get them to understand the experience and to know what they're booking into. Because I see it very much like a play, like going to theater or like uh, booking a flight ticket, which is that at the end of our conversation, I explain them the story about what's going on, what's going to happen, that they don't know what food they're going to eat and that there's going to be animals around, that they, they're going to come in and, 
you know, they may have an invasion of frogs. There may be cows walking through the garden in the middle of their dinners. Uh, they may see scorpions or whatever else. And then they say, yes, we're still interested. They make a payment. And people pay in full in advance for the dinners. And we've got reservations sometimes up to a year in advance. And so it's like a flight. You know, once you decide that you want to go in, you just go and you book it and we're in and the dinner starts. And if people are late, they arrive late and they catch on the play, you know, as it happens. And so that's how it works. And so I know every client personally, and we've all had a conversation before every client comes here. I remember when I started, my hypothesis was that it's the kind of dinner that people would come to one, once or twice a year at most. And I've been amazed that we've had clients come here four, four times. We had a bunch of people come four times, three times, twice. So we've had quite a lot of repeat clients, which is still blowing my mind away. Where does people come from? Does they come from, you know, the United States? Do they come all over the world to, to your location? One of my big contention and hypothesis when I started said, this is an experience for people who live here. And everybody told me, you're crazy. Costa Ricans don't eat fine dining. And I said, yeah, but they don't eat fine dining maybe because they don't know about it. Um, and th there's no options. And so I'm really happy to say that uh, we've had about 50% of clients who are Costa Ricans. And if they're not Costa Ricans, they live here in Costa Rica. They're foreigners who live in Costa Rica. And then the rest is, you know, people from all over the world. We have, in terms of foreigners, we have a majority of Americans. And then after that, it's got to be Canadians and then Europeans of all sorts. And we're getting a few Latin Americans also. We had a, quite a few people from Brazil come and eat here. When you say it's a fine dining experience, what, what is the philosophy behind your food? The, the main philosophy behind the food is really the name of the restaurant and the name of the business behind, which is HIR, here. Here is the integration of him and her. So it's him and her in one word. So for me, it's the integration of opposites. And so in everything we do, we always look at how can we integrate opposites better? You know, one of them is having this so very casual environment with a very refined, high-level, fine dining plating and ingredients. So in terms of the food itself, when I started, it was only seafood. I only had a seafood menu. There was nothing else. I didn't have vegetarian, vegan, or meats option. And then uh, a vegan chef convinced me that she wanted to try to do a vegan fine dining dinner. She convinced me that she would come here and give me some food to test. And I was blown away by the flavors. And so we ended up making a fine dining dinner for vegans. More than half of the customers were not even vegan, not even vegetarian. And they said that this was one of the best meals they ever had in their lives. And so now wow. to eat food, vegetarian and vegan dinners, vast majority, 90, 95% uh, is the seafood dinners. All the seafood is local. Every ingredient, uh, well, every seafood ingredient we use is local. And the vast majority of the ingredients we use is local. We do, you know, it's not, it's impossible. Well, no, it's it's just difficult for what, what we want to do to make everything local. So, you know, we still have, you know, things like soya sauce. And sometimes we use things like soba noodles or rice noodles. Or there's a few little things we use that come from abroad. But the vast majority comes from here. We've really put a lot of effort to make sure that everything is local and as much as possible also organic.
So, so, so developing in a menu because I know it takes it normally takes quite a lot of skills and culinary training. Where, where did you start on that journey? Actually, very differently than most chefs that I met who love cooking food and are passionate about cooking. I'm passionate about eating. I love eating great food, and that comes from my parents.、Um, they brought me to you know all sorts of restaurants when I was a kid. And growing up in Belgium, we had you know we didn't have a thing that was regular food. We didn't have you know food that was normal, because all I remember was you know one day we'd go and eat some Moroccan food, and then my mom would cook some Spanish food, and then she would be cooking some Polish food, and then we'd go eat out some Indian food, and so every day it was different. And they took us to you know fine dining Michelin star restaurant, and they took us to little holes in the walls and little like. Grandma's little places, and so I ate all over the world. I traveled over forty countries, and everywhere I go, I start with eating. And so, really, my passion is eating, eating food. When I got to university in the UK, I studied civil engineering. I discovered that on a student budget, I couldn't eat out like the way I was used to eating with my parents. And so survival became a great teacher, which is that you know I figured out how to cook things with the ingredients that were available in the UK on my student budget, which means that I was mostly cooking with you know reduced products、um, and products that were on offers. And so I remember you know going back home with chicken liver and Brussels sprouts and a bunch of random things that I didn't know what to do with, and spent a lot of time on the internet making trial and error. And so. I've been cooking for myself, being self-employed. I've been working from home for the last twelve years, and so I've been cooking for myself really for that whole time. So it's twelve years, three times a day, more or less, cooking for myself. And so I've I've got a lot of artistic training. You know, I've done a lot of photography. I've done a lot of drawing. I've done a lot of、uh, jewelry making. I've got done a lot of web design. So I've got a good eye, and I love working with my hands. And so. What I did here is that、uh, before starting the restaurant, I created a seven-course menu. I, I came up with seven dishes that I knew I could cook well and that I I was proud of, and I invited a few people to try them and test them. And when I got the green light from enough people, I put that out. And、uh, I had no idea, to be honest, whether it was gonna be fine dining level. I had no idea whether people were going to like it. I didn't expect. I definitely didn't expect to get the response I got. There, there is no way I could have imagined that people would give me the kind of compliment about the food that they did. When people say that I've eaten in Michelin star restaurants all over the world and that this is the best meal they've ever had, I still wonder what kind of drugs they're on before they arrive here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just so surprising still, and and we create dishes without much preparation. A lot of it,、um, some of my cooking inspiration actually here. I've been working with a Michelin star chef、uh, called Quentin Villers, and and he does you know a lot of what he calls freestyle cooking, where he just pulls stuff out of the fridge and he doesn't know what's you know like master chef kind of、uh, stuff, where he doesn't know what's gonna be there and then just cooks. With whatever there is, and we do a lot of that. We, you know, it's a lot of trial and error, and and then to create new dishes. The way I've done it is mostly doing extra dishes. So I would serve people an eighth dish or a ninth dish, and tell them, look, this is something that's in research and development. 
I can't promise you it's going to be good. Do you guys want to try it? And people always loved it. And so I'd be like, look, the, the only condition is I'm going to serve you this dish, but I want your honest opinion. And so I think that probably what's helped me more than every other chef that I know who hides in the kitchen is that I serve food to every client. So I know exactly what's left in the plates. People see me for three hours, so we talk about every dish. And at the end of every dinner, I ask people their favorites and I ask people to give me feedback and to give me criticism about anything they don't like. And people say it, you know, people have told me, look, you know what, that thing, I didn't really like that part or we didn't really like this. And so that's how we improve. This, this is a very interesting point you're raising because you talked about before, before they arrive to your restaurant, you uh, have a call with them. You communicate them during their, their, their dinner and you're very close to the experience. And then when they leave again you will get feedback and you try new things on if you take that a bit into you know the normal hospitality restaurant or the normal restaurant environment i don't think i ever heard about anyone that will get so much interaction and connection with their customers before they come and eat it do you think that's part of the success as well besides the food is really good that also that you create that exceptional experience besides the exceptional settings without me being there just looking at the pictures do you think that's a big part of it as well? Oh, yeah, it is a huge part of it. I, I, I definitely think that it's a huge part of it is the personality. And, and this is where, you know, bringing in everything I've done in acting and in public speaking and in uh, facilitating workshops is becoming very useful. And, you know, guests are often surprised that when they arrive, the first thing that I do have give them all a big hug. And I mean, what? What Michelin star restaurant anywhere does anybody give you a hug? <laughs> they, they won't even shake your hands, you know? Yeah. It's kind of a sterile sort of, you know, we all have our bubble. And for some people, it's weird, you know, because they're not expecting to get a hug from me. And then Nadia now, uh, my partner's moved here six months ago, and she gives the ev everyone a hug too. And people are surprised, you know, and they're not sure what's going on. And again, talking about the setting, what's interesting is that We've been in construction since I started. So I still don't have a restaurant that is that looks like a final product. So we've got, you know, 10 meters from where the guests are sitting. They can see uh, bags of cement and concrete blocks. And they can see, you know, the construction tools that the workers are using on the days that there's no dinners. And you would think, again, in a normal restaurant, that would be unacceptable. There's no way that people would want to eat in a restaurant that's still half in construction. And somehow here people love that. And I think that the reason they love it is because we bring them in, you know, backstage. In the same way, they're sitting there eating, and they're about four meters away from us cooking. And the kitchen has massive windows. So they're all open windows. So they can see us and talk to us while they're eating their dinner. So as they're eating, we're cooking. And as they go to the bathroom, now we know, now we've got a bathroom that's separate from the kitchen, but they still pass next to the kitchen so they can peek in and people lean in to the kitchen and they've got their mobile phones, you know, taking photos and videos of the kitchen as we're cooking. Restaurants, kitchens, they're, they're like a secret place. You're not allowed to go in there. It's a, it's, it's a place that's hidden from the guests. And here, what we're doing, and my big inspiration for that is Penn and Teller, the magicians. I love when they show how the trick is done. I love when they show you backstage. I love when they show you what magicians 
I'm not allowed to show you. And so we do that. And I think that, that people love that. Um, you just mentioned that you had a second team member on board. And, and I guess that with all the different things you do, you need some hands to help you. So so how, how big is your, is, your, is your organization out there? Many will think he, he must have uh, quite a lot of people to help him to make all these things happen. So the first year I did everything alone. Everything alone, like from, and I would, and I would actually, that would be my opening to the guests would be, so if you have any feedback, please let me know directly because I'm to blame for everything that's wrong here. Um, from cooking the dishes to cleaning the toilets, I do everything. And, and again, I think that that was part of the, the, the attraction and the thing for guests is that they see this as, you know, this little extraordinary little show where I do everything. I clean the plates, I... I and they reached a point where I can do that for as much as many as eight people, but above eight people is just not possible. I can't be doing all of that on my own. And the truth is that even up to eight people with the increasing number of guests and doing the mark, I also do the marketing and the accounting, the photography, the website. Um, and so it just became a little bit insane because also I live 30 minutes away from the closest town, therefore to the closest store, and I don't have a car. So I also didn't have a car to do all of this. And so guests would always say, how the fuck do you even get your produce here? So, well, you know what? I've got a lot of neighbors who are really friendly and who give me rides. So I spent a year doing this with rides from neighbors. And so Nadia moved here from New York at end of November to help me with the high season because when we have 12 guests and we're having especially Christmas New Year where we do 10 courses per person, then it becomes insane. I mean, it's just impossible. Uh, and so I'm very happy that she's helped me. She's helping me now and she's now doing also, you know, things I couldn't do like Instagram and um, and we're doing finer dishes, more refined dishes now because we have more time and, you know, we can do more in parallel, but that's just still the two of us. There's just two of us. There, there's nobody else. If you if you go into your kitchen, I guess that we we talked about a bit before earlier is that it's not as sterile as you know the normal Michelin star kitchen, the normal restaurant kitchen. It's very very different, I guess. And I know you're building a new kitchen. Will that be a bit more like you know your your standard restaurant kitchen? Well, it's an interesting question because when you know I had a Michelin star chef come here and being a guest chef. Uh, regularly and he's been mentoring me on how to manage you know the, the restaurant the kitchen side of the restaurant better and he's been pushing me to have you know a quote-unquote real restaurant kitchen with metal countertops and you know everything white and everything with ceramic and everything you know the way you see it in uh, in, in every Michelin restaurant. And I, I could not bring myself to do that. I was hating every day of thinking that I would have to have a kitchen like that at some point. And so we've been, I've been working very hard with my construction team um, and then Nadia, my partner, uh, we've been brainstorming for a long time on how to avoid that and how to be able to still have a legal kitchen that's, accepted you know for by the ministry of health and that doesn't fit with those uh, standards because for me it's a creative place so the countertops are all in concrete in like polished really uh, soft concrete they're black they're black countertops they look like um they could be from a, a, a greek uh, a, an old greek temple 
an Egyptian temple. And then the floor, we just finished the floor, and the floor is uh, yellow and red. It looks like a, a modern art painting, you know, where they splash red and yellow on the mm -hmm. canvas. That's what it looks like. And so it really looks like a creative space. And that, that, that's what was important for me, that you walk in the kitchen and it feels creative. It feels like an artistic space. Once you open all the windows, there's practically no walls. There's probably 80% uh, of uh, windows and 20% of walls. <laughs> to make all this happen and make people know about it, I guess that you have been using, you said technology and social media is one, a very important ingredient, I guess. And how important is that for, for his existence that you utilize that? Huge. And I have to say that, you know, if it wasn't for services like Facebook, and TripAdvisor, and then, you know, later on OpenTable, there is no way I could have done this. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, all the advertising was done through TripAdvisor and Facebook to start with. That's all I had. And it was amazing to see the result and to see that you could reach people so far and so wide in that way. And again, I remember before I started, everyone told me, you're crazy, how people... How are people even going to find you in the middle of nowhere? And I did all of that with about uh, less than $100 of uh, Facebook advertising uh, budget. Wow. Wow. So very small means creating a, a big impression. There was something I didn't ask you in the beginning. I think there's probably a lot of people think, why, why did you travel out to the middle of nowhere when you, you, know, you were having a, probably a great degree and stuff like that from a UK university. Why, why travel to, to, to the, in Costa Rica and not being able to do maybe your business coaching? And first of all, why, why, why did you go on that journey? Oh, that's a, that's a cool question. Thank you. It was always a childhood dream. I will, you know, I, I, as far as I can remember, I always loved the integration of opposites. So I, I, I fantasized as a kid that I would love to help run businesses at, a, at an international level and help people strategize at a global level while living in a tropical country. I always saw myself living in a, in a cave somewhere in the jungle. And obviously that was kind of like a childhood fantasy and I, I quickly grew up to realize that that was not possible and that, you know, it was not realistic and that if I wanted to have a real impact in the world and coach entrepreneurs and business owners who are doing amazing things, I need to be in, in places that are central. And so that's why I lived in, I run my business in uh, London and then I was in New York. I was in places like Warsaw in Poland, Istanbul in Turkey, um, big cities, big places. It was a bit of a chance and luck. And I was in the U.S. My business visa had run out. I needed to leave the country for two months before I could renew my visa. And Costa Rica was, you know, quite close to the U.S. I found a place where I could, that I could rent for cheap just next to the beach. And I thought, ah, that'll be nice. You know, for two months, I can do a little bit of my work from the beach. And so I apologized to all my coaching clients by saying, look, you know, we're going to take all the coaching on Skype and I'm going to be in Costa Rica. What was surprising for me is that instead of people being like, oh, what the fuck, you know, you're in Costa Rica, you know, trying to coach us, you're on holidays, basically. They're all like, wow, this is fucking amazing. You're incredible. How are you running your business from Costa Rica? This is amazing. Can we come do a week of coaching with you over there? And so... I realized that actually my childhood fantasy maybe wasn't that crazy after all and that 
that thing that thought that grew up to accept was not possible turned out to actually not only be possible, but actually seemed like it was an advantage to being in London or L.A. or New York. And that's how I moved here. And um, and my business coaching has been flourishing. And so I bought land here to create this retreat center. And then I had this little uh, hiccup with the Internet. And the same thing happened with the fine dining. Since I was at university, people asked me, why don't you cook as a chef? You know, why don't you work as a chef? Why don't you work in a restaurant? And my answer was always the same. You know, it's restaurant or working in a kitchen of a restaurant would kill my love for food because it's a very hierarchical kind of place. It's a very traditional uh, industry. You never get to meet clients. You're stuck inside of a kitchen. You never see the light of the day. And basically, you become a machine. You have to repeat the same dishes and the same stuff. Every single day, you have antisocial hours of work, and you don't even get paid that much. You know, it seemed like, fuck it, this is not a cool thing to do. I would much prefer to own a restaurant. And so when I got here and I started the fine dining, I said, I will do this, but under my own conditions. And I'm not willing to do this differently. And that's why, you know, I said the whole thing to be the way I wanted, which was, you know, seven courses, seafood, one menu, no changes, no wine, no alcohol. It was just all very, very simplified. And it was all the way I wanted it to be. It's, it's like crazy. You're saying, actually, the, the, the challenge that was thrown to you uh, at that point would look like, oh, this is going to be a disaster, actually turned out to take you to, to, to a better place. We, we're running out a bit of time here, Noam, but I always ask the last question to people on the podcast. And I'm sure we're going to connect again and, and talk about your incredible journey on another podcast. I think there's more than one podcast that has to be done here to, to justify your very interesting story is there one advice you can give uh, here on the end of the podcast to somebody that wants to start their hospitality business thank you it would be a pleasure to continue the conversation and do some more podcasts like this because sharing this experience is also a great way for me to clarify it in my head and you know to organize the thoughts um, as to what happened now, talking about someone wanting to start their own hospitality business, my, my biggest advice is actually linked to the first book that I wrote, which is You Are Your Brand. And I can see it with this business more than anything else I've done, which is you are the reason people love your business. And so you've got to be 100% authentic and honest with yourself as to what is, who is it you are and what is it you like? What is it that gets you excited? And getting people the kind of experience you want. Because the truth is that I cook food that I want to eat because I eat the leftovers from the clients. I eat the same food that the clients eat. And so I cook stuff that I want to eat. And I'm and if at the end of the dinner, uh, at the end of my dinner, I'm like, uh, you know what, I'm tired of this thing, I'm going to change it. And I do everything in the way that makes me happy. And even though it breaks all the paradigms, even though everybody tells me you're crazy, this is not the way it's done in the business, this is not the way it works, you can't do this, you can't do that. I said, you know what, if people are going to believe me when I say it's amazing and if people are going to come here, I want to give them the best that I can. If you don't do the best that you believe is the best and you try to please people, you can't ever give them something different. 
You can't ever give them an experience that's not, that they don't even know they want. And, you know, the best example I can give again with that is we had a guest who recently said, oh, but, you know, I don't really feel comfortable sitting so close to other guests. And we told him, look, you know, if you really want to, we can sit you at the other end of the table there, but we don't have another table. So you're just going to be sitting on your own with your wife at the end of the table. It's going to look very awkward. You're already here. Try it. And within 15 minutes of the the other guests arriving, he was already telling them that he was inviting them to his home. He could take them on a trip. And, you know, and they were taking photos together. And they had an absolutely amazing time. And then he was sharing his um, he brought wine um, for, you know, he had a corkage fee. And so he brought his own wine and he even started sharing his wine with the, the other guests. You know, it's the thing that Ford said. If I had given people what they wanted, I would have given them faster horses. People don't know who you are. And the only way you can make a successful, for me, the only way to really make a successful hospitality business is to show people who you are and to get them to fall in love with that. Wow, that was that was a great piece of advice uh, there, Noam. Uh, in the end, so thank you very much again, uh, Noam. I'm sure we're gonna catch up in in, in the near future to talk about uh, other things again, especially the last thing you talked about being your own brand. That will be a very interesting conversation to dive into. So again, thank you for your time today, uh, Noam. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me to this conversation, and it's an honor to 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 be here with you. So thanks a lot, and I look forward to being able to share this with everybody and uh, to make another conversation uh, very soon. That's all we have time for today. Thanks again, Noam, for your time, unique insights, and for sharing your story and here's Jungle Dining Experience. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please like, share, subscribe, or even tell us what you think. To what extent do you think the best hospitality experiences are created? A special thank you to Laura from Let's Talk Video Production for her special assistance in making these podcasts happen. We hope you have enjoyed today's Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinker. Tune in next time for more great insights. Find out more about us at hospitalitymavericks.com. Thank you and be maverick.